Welcome to the Life Church of Kansas City podcast. Please consider following, sharing, and supporting by giving at tlckcmo.com. May you be blessed by the Word of God. I want to read Revelation 1.18. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Thank the Lord. Amen. Muhammad is dead. Gandhi is dead. Abraham is dead. Joseph Smith is dead. Buddha is dead. But our prophet is alive. <laughs> Our prophet is alive. Woo! Jesus is alive. Tonight I want to really give you a apologetic teaching from the word of the Lord on the resurrection. And I want to entitle this The Resurrection, the Fact and the impact. Are you thankful to know that Jesus is alive? Amen. Jesus is alive. Amen. You may be seated. Book of Acts, chapter 1, verse 1. The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach, until the day in which he was taken up, after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom also he presented himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs being seen by them forty days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Everybody say infallible. That means without argument, no debate, beyond a reasonable doubt, infallible proofs. All of Christianity hangs on one event, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If Jesus did not rise, and we're gathering this Sunday, if the Lord tarries, to once again bring Jesus up out of that grave and celebrate him. But if he did not rise, then our faith is in vain and we are doomed. If he didn't rise from the dead, we're in error and there is no hope. However, if Jesus did rise from the dead, then he is God Almighty. And if he did rise from the dead, he is God Almighty, and we and every person alive today must do something with the resurrection. You can't ignore the resurrection if it happened. You can't deny it intellectually, and I'm going to demonstrate that tonight. 
by the help of the Lord. But if Jesus rose from the dead, for the Christian, the believer, that is the resurrection power of Christ in us through the power of the Holy Spirit, which is the ultimate power because it's power over death. It's power over our greatest enemy, the grave. For the atheist or the unbeliever, the resurrection is the ultimate problem. But for the spirit-filled believer, the resurrection is the ultimate power. You either believe it, deny it, or ignore it. But the last two options would not be advisable or intellectually sound in light of the evidence. Every person who denies or ignores the resurrection of Jesus Christ will die. And at the judgment, they will fulfill Philippians 2 verse 9, which says, Therefore God has also highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those things in heaven, those on earth, those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I wish I could say that this passage in Philippians 2 is a time of rejoicing when we all confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But there is a piece of this passage that every person who's ever lived will be forced to recognize that Jesus Christ is King of kings and he's Lord of lords. You know, John in the book of Revelation saw one on the throat and when he looked at him, one time he looked like a lamb. And that's, that's who he is right now. He's a lamb, the lamb slain. He's in the role of the Redeemer. We have an opportunity to be redeemed for redemption through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. But when John looked at him a second time, he looked like a lion. And Philippians chapter 2 is referring to that day when he will be a judge. And every agnostic, every atheist, every person who just decided, I'm not going to do anything with Jesus. I'm not going to do anything with the resurrection. I'll just hedge my bets and take my chances. Well, the Bible says they're going to be forced that every knee is going to bow. Every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Why don't we start that right now? Amen. Why don't we do it while it'll do us some good? Hallelujah. We recognize that he is the Lord. He is the Lord. Praise God. Even in the first century, think about this. Even in the first century, the resurrection had its doubters, skeptics, antagonists. And for this reason, Paul wrote to the church in Corinth and he defended the resurrection. Notice 1 Corinthians 15, 3. 
He said, let me now remind you, dear brothers and sisters, of the good news I preached to you already. You welcomed it then, and you still stand firm in it. It is the good news. Everybody say good news. That's what gospel means. It is the gospel. The gospel is the good news that saves you if you continue to believe the message I told you. Unless, of course, and I'm reading the NLT, unless, of course, you believe something that was never true in the first place. I passed on to you what was most important and what had also been passed on to me. And now here is the gospel as Paul unpacks it. He said, Christ died for your sins, just as the scripture says. Then he was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scripture said. So he died, he was buried, he rose again. That is the gospel. And we obey that gospel, not just a third of it or two thirds of it, but all 100% of it. As he died, we die through repentance. As he was buried, we are buried with him by baptism into his death. That's Romans 6, 4. As he rose from the dead, we rise through the power of the resurrection, through the infilling of the spirit. Paul said this in Romans 8, 11, If the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, it shall quicken or make alive your mortal body. The infilling of the Holy Spirit is the resurrection power. Are you thankful to know that tonight? Amen. Then verse 5, he was seen by Peter and then by the 12. So, so Paul is pushing back against the skeptics who didn't believe in the resurrection. He was seen by Peter. Then he was seen by the 12. These are people that all of his readers would know. They would recognize their names. Seen by the 12, verse 6, after that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time. That's very significant. 500 people all at the same time saw that Jesus was alive. Most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Verse 7, then he was seen by James, later by all the apostles, last of all, as though I had been born at the wrong time, I also saw him. So let me appeal to your intelligence. Everybody just look straight ahead. Let me appeal to your logic. So how do we come to any history? How do we, for example, come to the history of America, our beautiful country? Were you there when the pilgrims landed at Plymouth Rock? You're old if you were there. Were you there at the first Thanksgiving? Were you there at the signing of the Declaration of Independence? Were you there at the tragic assassination of President Abraham Lincoln? None of us were there. But why do we believe that these, these things happen? How do we come to the intellectual 
place where we believe and embrace historic account? Well, we choose to believe credible eyewitness accounts. No matter how impossible it seems, how ridiculous, improbable, we who are removed from the event of past centuries, we choose to believe what intelligent, reliable, credible people said, they saw, they wrote, what they heard, what they experienced, and perhaps they collaborated with other reliable and credible witnesses. So we believe and embrace and trust the historic account of the resurrection using the same logic, the same principles, and intelligence of believing the credibility of all universally accepted history. It is not consistent to believe that George Washington said he, you know, he cut down the cherry tree, and then us not to believe in anything that's written in this book. Is that reasonable? So let's examine the resurrection critically. Secular humanists have attempted to explain away the empty tomb. Here are some of their theories. They have said, first of all, well, their tomb was empty because the disciples stole his body. Well, that's already covered in the Bible. Matthew 28, 13, there was a concern that the disciples would manufacture the resurrection because Jesus said he would rise again. And so Caiaphas, the high priest, and the temple guards made sure. In fact, they went to Pilate and got approval to seal the tomb. So they're guaranteeing for us, 2,000 years later, that the disciples could not. I mean, think about it. Can 12 fishermen and tax collectors uh, overcome professional guards and, you know, attack them and tie them up and, you know, then break into the tomb and steal Jesus? Does that make any sense? It makes no sense. So that's one thing. What about, would the disciples steal the body of Jesus and create a hoax and then at the end of their lives lay down their lives for a lie? Would they die for a hoax? I don't think so. The reason they were willing to lay down their lives is because they handled him. They touched him. Jesus showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs. They ate food with him on the beach. They touched him. Jesus said to Thomas, touch me, feel me. He appeared to over 500 at one time. So that, that theory doesn't make any sense. The second attempt to explain the empty tomb is that the disciples viewed the wrong tomb. They looked at the wrong tomb. So does this seem logical? Does this seem reasonable? The answer is no, because first of all, 
Jesus was not buried in a cemetery. He was not buried in a cemetery where there were dozens and dozens and dozens of multiple, very similar looking tombs or tombstones or burial places. Okay? Jesus was buried in a garden where only wealthy people could afford to buy a piece of ground in this garden like Joseph of Arimathea, who loaned out his tomb to Jesus because he only needed it for the weekend. <laughs> I thought that was pretty good. Uh, and Jesus' mother, think about this. I. I've just been praying all kinds of prayers. And I prayed today, Lord, comfort every parent who's ever buried a child. I was thinking about Mary. Well, no parent should have to. Some of you have. Um, but would Mary have just casually observed the tomb or her oldest son? would have been laid and didn't really pay much attention to where he was. No, I think Mary is stepping back from that tomb. He's right. She takes it in. She doesn't miss a detail. In fact, the Bible says specifically um, in Mark 16, 47, that Mary Magdalene and Mary observed where Jesus was laid. They paid close attention to where Jesus was laid. So it doesn't make any logical sense that they viewed the wrong tomb. Here's another theory. Skeptics who don't believe in the resurrection say, that Jesus really didn't die, that he just fainted, that he went into a coma. And then while he was in that tomb, he sort of recovered and, uh, you know, found another way out. And that's their explanation. Does this seem logical? Not when you consider what a Roman scourging was like when a Roman professional executor who, who knew death, who did death, who had killed many men and knew the symptoms of being near death. And the Roman scourging was designed to bring a man to the point of death where death would be a sweet relief and then the ultimate torment to not let him die. And this is how our Lord was treated. Uh, the blood loss, and we just celebrated the redeeming blood of Jesus. The blood loss at the whipping post was perhaps up to half of the blood in his body continued to lose blood 
as he walked the quarter mile to Golgotha, down the Via Dolorosa. Then he's nailed to a wood structure we call the cross. His hands are nailed, his feet are nailed with big spikes, more blood loss, crown of thorns, the thorns themselves releasing poison into his body. He was experiencing seizures and contractions that he could not control, tremors and quivers. He's on this cross, not for 20 minutes or an hour, an hour and a half. He's there for six hours on this cross. No food, no drink. And then when he said, it is finished, there was a great earthquake and he died. He gave up the ghost. The Bible said that a soldier nearby thrust a spear up between his ribcage into his left side. And the Bible says that blood and water, blood and water, that is a medical communication to us that Jesus actually died of a broken heart. Is it the pericardium? Am I saying it right? The water sack around his heart ruptured. And so blood is thicker than water. Blood came first. That means that the heart had already expired. If not, then water would have come out first, but he was already dead. And uh, then they took him down from the cross and they did not place him in an ER where there is warmth and blankets and medicine and, and, and a suitable uh, environment for him to recover, but where is he placed? In a dark damp, cold, hewn out rock and then sealed shut, no fresh air. So would that be conducive to coming out of a swoon? I think not. It's not logical. It makes no sense. Now, let me just quickly go through some proofs that Jesus did not swoon, but that he did die. We mentioned the Roman scourging. We want to mention the testimony of the soldier of the cross who said in Matthew 27, 54, when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they feared greatly, saying, saying, truly this was the Son of God. This is after he had expired. Again, a soldier trained in death recognized that he was gone. We have the testimony of the soldiers who did not break the legs of Jesus. They would customarily come and break the legs of Jesus to accelerate the moment of death so that the the crucified one could not raise up and support his chest cavity. But if his legs were broken, his rib cage, in effect, would... uh, collapse on his lungs and would asphyxiate him. But John 19, 31 says, Therefore, because it was the preparation day that the body should not remain on the cross of the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away so they wouldn't desecrate the Sabbath. The soldiers came, broke the legs of the first and the other who was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus, 
they saw he was already dead and they did not break his legs, which, by the way, fulfills another prophecy which says not a bone was broken. We have the testimony of the soldier who pierced Jesus' side. We have numerous written testimonies of the four gospel writers. Uh, other collaborators, we have Paul's account. We even have Josephus, Flavius Josephus, who was a uh, Jewish aristocrat who also was a bit of a chameleon. And he would vote his checkbook, whoever was signing his checks, that's who he would sort of write history for. We can't really take all of the record of Josephus as scripture, obviously, because it's not scripture. And what I'm going to share with you now is highly contested, but Josephus writes, and Eusebius quotes him, that Jesus was the Messiah. He's not saying that I believe he's the Messiah, but that his followers, he, had a, he attracted a great following. He suffered, he bled, he died. Three days later, he rose. So Josephus was born four years after Jesus was crucified. Uh, and he passed at 100 A.D., but his, he was old enough to be a contemporary and to uh, hear the word on the street, so to speak, of Jesus. Uh, one other proof that he died is the, heavily, the testimony of the heavily guarded, sealed tomb. Now, let me close with proofs that Jesus resurrected from the dead, and I don't have to prove, I know I'm not proving this to anybody, but I just want to build your faith. I just want to encourage you. And maybe there's someone watching who has doubt uh, about some of these things. So number one, we have the accuracy of the biblical account corresponding with the tomb today. Number one, it's prox the tomb that when you go to Israel, how many's been to Israel? Several of you have. When you go to Israel, you can believe that the tomb they say is the tomb. It is the tomb. For these, these reasons. One, the proximity to Calvary. Two, it's in a garden. Three, it is hewn out of stone. Four, the Bible said when the women came on the first day of the week, they said, who will roll for us away the stone? Well, the normal tomb in that garden was only this tall, and two or three women could have easily rolled it away. But the Stone that covered this tomb was taller than an average size man, and it would take several men or one angel to roll the stone away. Okay, so it's proximity to Calvary, it's in a garden, it's hewn out of stone, the size of the stone that was required. And then here's what's interesting Mark 16 5. The Bible says, When the women entered the tomb, and those of you that have been there, I should have brought pictures, but it said, they saw a young man clothed in a long white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. So when you go in the tomb, you're in the mourner's uh, room. It's about eight feet by eight feet, as I recall. And then there's another uh, open but separate space divided by a sort of a high threshold. And then there's two slabs where it looks like a husband and wife could be intermed. Uh, there permanently. And so the biblical account uh, supports what this tomb looks like when you go inside. 
Christ would have been buried on the right-hand side. Uh, other proofs of his resurrection is that Jesus appeared not just to one person like, yeah, yeah, I saw Jesus, yeah. And then right after that, a UFO flew over. And, but, you know, I only saw Jesus just for like three seconds, and then he was just gone. He's like a ghost. He was like, woo. You know, this is not, this is not the account that we're getting. But we have more than 500 credible witnesses at one time, seen multiple times by the disciples, the women. We have the testimony of Thomas, I've already mentioned. We have the testimony of the guards at the sealed tomb who were bribed to say that his disciples, did those guards sleep a wink the rest of their life? They were paid all this money to lie that the disciples stole the body. We have the witnesses of those who came out of the graves at the moment of Christ's death. We have the historical collaboration of Josephus. And finally, we know more about Jesus and his life than we do about Julius Caesar. And no one questions the record of Julius Caesar. Why not embrace the record of Jesus Christ? Would you stand? And I want to make this last point. This really came to me strongly. And I'm not sure who this might be for tonight. Maybe someone here, maybe someone watching. Listen to Acts 1.21. Therefore, and, and this is the moment is when they're trying to replace Judas. Judas betrayed the Lord. And they're talking about the qualification of Judas' replacement. Of these men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, from the baptism of John to the day he was taken up, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. Here's the point. The replacement of Judas had to be there at Jesus' baptism. He had to be there at the resurrection. What is, what am, I, what am I saying? I'm saying that for a person to be a fully informed, fully empowered witness of Jesus Christ, you got to experience baptism and resurrection. <laughs> Man, I might make a good preacher one of these days after all. Huh? How about that? Starting with the baptism of Jesus to his resurrection. Nothing's changed. If we're going to be witnesses of Jesus Christ, we have to be baptized in his name and filled with the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. And I feel a witness of that right now. Hallelujah. Praise God. Nothing's changed. You must be born of the water and of the spirit or you cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. Praise God. Lord, we celebrate the resurrection. Lord, we thank you for suffering and bleeding and dying. We thank you for coming out of that grave, forgiving your tormentors, forgiving your persecutors, forgiving your betrayers. Lord, you said, Lord, on the cross, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. We know that hell trembled 
at those words because the devil does his best work in unforgiveness and offense. And Lord, you released us today to forgive each other and to receive the full power of the resurrection. We thank you for it, Jesus. Praise God. Would you like to come forward tonight and celebrate the resurrection? We've got a few minutes. Let's just come forward and rejoice. Let's encourage one another that Jesus is coming back. He's coming back soon. If you've never been baptized, we have water to baptize you tonight. If you've never been filled with the Holy Spirit, you can be filled. Please keep coming because there's people coming behind you. You can be filled with the Holy Spirit tonight. Praise God. Let's lift our hands and open our mouths and declare that he is alive. Are there any witnesses of the resurrection tonight? Are you a witness? Are you a witness of the resurrection? Hallelujah. Lord, you're alive forevermore. Lord, nobody can convince us. Nobody can persuade us against the resurrection. We've studied it. Lord, we've analyzed it. We've examined it from top to bottom, side to side. And Lord, we've experienced the power of the resurrection through the infilling of the Holy Spirit. We celebrate it tonight. And we thank you for it, Jesus, in your precious name. Hallelujah. Go ahead. Go ahead. He's alive. He's alive. It's Holy Week. It's Holy Week. Hallelujah. The healer's here. The waymaker's here. The deliverer is here. The blood is here. The name is here. Oh, Lord, we celebrate the empty tomb. We celebrate. Thank you for listening to this message. For more content, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube at the Life Church KC. Reference the episode notes for more details.